Welcome, campers. Settle in tight, for tonight you're in for a fright. Welcome, campers, to Friday Night Fright. We're your hosts. I'm Ryan. And I'm Jordan. So, you will notice, in addition to this being released 12 hours later than our Friday (laughs) episodes usually are, we're mixing things up for the spooky season and we're getting a jump on it. It starts officially tomorrow with the 1st of October. In lieu of our um, fireside chats, this month, we're going to be bringing you Friday Night Frights. Friday Night Fright. Fright. Singular. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we will be bringing multiple frights. For Friday Night Fright. Yes. Right. Um, so, we're basically going to be reading scary stories to each other and talking through them. Yeah. So, unlike the normal show where we read you know, semi-scary stories. Mm-hmm. This is completely different. <laughs> <laughs> well, these stories are in no way based on reality. Right, of course. So, they are fictions. Um, but, you know, for spooky season, we're going to we're going to toss the uh the normal paranormal focus out the window and just go with some scary yeah. shit for the month. Yeah, I'm into it. I'm into it. I think it'll be uh I think it'll be a lot of fun. So, yeah. Absolutely. I'm I'm actually psyched. I think you're really going to dig this story. Excellent. What have you got for us? I have a story called Someone Has Died. All right. Yeah. You ready to get into it? I think so. All right. Cue that spooky music. Someone has died. Of this I am certain. I know it because I always know it. As I lie here alone in this big, empty bed and listen to the rain, I remember it as it returns to me. This feeling, this dread, skittering up and down my throat with a thousand little legs. It settles in my stomach like a great stone, a solid, sickening weight. It is rancid in its heaviness and unmistakable in its familiarity. Someone has died. I do not know who. I sit up. And I take a long breath, pulling my legs out from beneath the covers so that they can dangle above the hardwood, cold where I press my feet. The remains of chipped red polish color my toes. I had intended to paint them this week, but I could not choose a color. I've been told that I am bad at making decisions, too nervous to choose the wrong one. But I don't think that's true. Someone else has simply always been there to make them on my behalf. But I will make one now. 
I will call my daughter, I think. I move for the end table to retrieve my glasses. They sit crooked on my nose, and I push them back into place as I look at my cell phone, plugged into the wall there. I wait for it to ring. I stare. I expect it. But it doesn't. I had told my husband at one time that we should keep the landlines, one in the kitchen and one in the bedroom, for hurricanes or when the power goes out. But there was no point, he had decided. No point when we had a family plan, which was expensive. But sitting here now, maybe there was a point. I think, and maybe I had not insisted hard enough. A person can't silence landline phones, after all. Not really. Not the way they do mobile phones at night. Maybe someone has called me already. Someone with the most awful news. And I didn't hear. Connie doesn't have a landline either. She may not even answer now. Or worse, she may no longer be able to. I shudder, picking up the device. No missed calls. I turn on the sound and begin to flip through my contacts, squinting in the dark. Connie will answer, I think. And she will be upset that I woke her for nothing. She'll say that the children are asleep, and that she just checked on them. Howard is out cold beside her. And yes, she is positive, sure, 100% certain that she can see the rhythm of his chest up and down, up and down. He's breathing. He is breathing and he has work in the morning, and so I really should not bother them so early. There's nothing to worry about and she'll visit me soon. And we'll get our toes done together, the pair of us. It must be the storm, she'll say, the storm riling me up. Connie has always thought I worry too much, though, and maybe I do. I place the phone back down. I will not call her, I think. I have nothing to fret over. The phone hasn't rung. No one has called. And they always do it so tactfully in hushed voices, as if the most terrible part of the announcement is the waking. The, oh, so sorry for disturbing you, ma'am. I stare at the phone again. I wait. It doesn't ring. I hover a hand over it but I don't pick it up to make the call. I shouldn't disturb her. But someone has died. Of this I am certain. My father died when I was six years old. I first felt this peculiar, nauseous feeling. The sensation of knowing as I lie in a bed much smaller than this one, with a delicate white metal headboard, wrought in the shape of flowers. I awoke and stared at the ceiling, taking a long, labored breath and pulling the heavy comforter up to my chin, just as I always did to fight off the wind that could fill that room in the winter months. It rattled the windows, and it rattled me, shaking my very bones as I rolled over to look at the little toy chest across the room. It had been gifted to me by some distant cousin when I was very, very young, too young to recall the party. But it had sat there for so long as I could remember, as if it had always existed right there alongside me. It now sat properly shut for the night. But that was when the sensation came for me the first time, this indisputable, terrible stone in my gullet. Softly, as not to disturb my parents, I pulled myself upward to sit atop the mattress, and crawling to the floor, I crept inch by inch across the room my hair dangling over my face. I pause above the toy box and I stare down at it, 
and for reasons I even now cannot dare to say, I opened the lid. I don't know how my father got inside, but I saw his bulging bloodshot eye staring up at me in the dark. The rest of his swollen features obscured and buried by the clutter. So wait. The dad is in the toy box? Yes. <laughs> All right. Yes. Okay. I, yes. I just, yeah, I wanted to make sure I understood that right, because that's that's super creepy. <laughs> yeah, she found her father dead in her toy box. Like, I was going to comment on, like, the way that she was, like, crawling with her hair, like, dangling in her face and, like, standing <laughs> yeah. up and basically draping over it. Like, that would be creepy enough to watch, but... Absolutely. F- yeah. A baby doll whose own hinged eyes have broken forever open. A spinning top, a velveteen teddy bear, an assemblage of blocks. My father's eyes looked up at me from beneath them all. It blinked. And at last he said my name, his voice hoarse, a hollow splintered noise, uttered through unseen lips from the very depths of his ravaged throat, the worst noise I ever heard. Cassie. I ran. And from the upper railing, my face placed flush between the wooden rods, I found my mother standing in the front hallway, clad in her checkered nightgown. She wore her hair in curlers then, and pressed up against a dark, wallpapered wall, she stared at the telephone in the alcove by the door. She stared, and I stared at her staring. I know now that she knew like I know. But most people can tell, I think even if they don't realize it. They pick it up in the chilliness of the air, in the lateness of the hour, in an unnatural flicker of a piece of fabric. These tiny signs that something is amiss, that the universe has shifted. They create in a person, a person with enough sense to see, a terrible, sinking, heavy feeling. And finally, the phone rang. Sometime later, my mother found me huddled by the doorway of my bedroom. I didn't dare go back in, but I had retreated there to cower after a few minutes of listening. She smoked a cigarette as she told me. A nervous habit people still did around their kids then. But I already knew, of course. I knew that my father had died. I learned later, not from my mother that a towering industrial shelf in his warehouse had collapsed, and he'd been buried by its contents. And I had found him just like that, entombed in my toy box, some grotesque phantom vision caught like a crude, blurry snapshot of the moment of his death. But he was not there when my mother closed the chest again that night, and he did not return. The feeling, however, had been there, this terrible sensation of knowing, the awareness of a death. I had felt it then, and I feel it now. I really should call Connie, I think. I pick up the phone, and as I look down at it, my finger hovers over the lock. But I don't press down. I shouldn't bother her. Instead, I tuck the device back in place, and I rise from the bed. I rise, and as if compelled, I move for the closet. The mighty wooden armoire perched right beside the window, where the rain still patters. I stare at it, and I reach out a hand. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't fucking do it. (laughs) (laughs) But I hesitate. 
I hesitate because I think that if I open it, I might find someone staring back. A rotted specter come to visit. Because perhaps it didn't know where else to go. I do not deign to know the motives of decaying ghosts. And I still even now do not know why I saw my father that night. Only that at his funeral, I cried because they had once again put him in a box. And maybe that was it, after all. The soul's search for a box in which to be put, now that its fleshy container had loosed it. With a bracing breath, I grabbed the golden knobs. I should go back to bed. I shouldn't open it. I shouldn't open it because if I do, I may regret it. But if I do not open it, I will have to sit here and wait and stare at the phone until it begins to ring, which I of course know it will. And so, closing my eyes and rearing back my head so that I might not have to look, I grasp the handles and I tug. I tug and the armoire opens, and I dare not peek. I count to three in my head. And in the very back of my mind, I can see Connie now. Think of her as a child in a red dress we had bought her for Christmas. I should like to remember her that way. Not how I remember my father. Not as a faceless blackened eye in a box. I turn back my head. I take another breath. And I open my eyes. I seek clothing. And only clothing. Closet full of patterned blouses and dresses I have so few opportunities to wear. But I will have to pick something now. In black for the services, I think. For whichever one I will have to attend. Not that one, though. But maybe this one. I decide, reaching out to run my fingers along the edges of a dark, colored dress with silver buttons down its back. No, maybe not. Reaching into the armoire again, I pull out a dress with a low waist, a black rose stitched on the hip. I could wear it with a long silver chain my husband bought me, I think, and one with the silver charms. But maybe that would be too garish, too bold for such a grim occasion. No. I think I could wear it with my mother's pearls. They were more understated. I had known it when she died, too. But she had not gone suddenly, no. Not like a lamp abruptly turned out before the dark. Her own end had come gradually, like the waning glow of sunset, bit by bit. Until night could be the only natural expected conclusion. The phone rang in the middle of the afternoon that day, when I had been folding laundry the weight of knowing in my stomach. The hospital had told us to go home and to rest that morning, and that they would call if anything changed. But something had indeed changed before they decided to tell us. I wandered into the kitchen that day to find Connie already with the telephone's cord jumbled around her elbow, and I knew for certain. I should call Connie now, I think. I should have her check on Howard and the children. No. No, it would wake them. They would be upset. And really, it's just as likely to be a co-worker or someone from the church. These thoughts bring no comfort. But still, wrapped in them, like a terrible frayed quilt, I reach into the closet once more, shifting through the row of heavy clothing in search of the long-sleeved dress with the belt. I will wear that one to the funeral, I think. It might be the proper choice because I'd worn it to my husband's funeral. 
I was alone in bed on the night Richard died. He had been working late, as he often did, and I had fallen asleep early with the television on. Lulled by the lullaby of commercials and rain, I awoke as if from a nightmare to find an infomercial about a countertop grill just starting to loop. The feeling once again took hold as I rolled over to check the alarm clock blinking red, and I lay there for a good long while watching my phone, curled up in a ball beneath the covers as some sports star extolled the virtues of a sleek designed grease trap and easy cleaning. The phone rang at 2.27 in the morning, and it was on the third chime that I felt a sudden shift in the bed beside me. A ragged, heavy breath ghosted my ear. Hot and garbled, the way a person chokes, and the familiar weight of an arm stretched over to wrap around my shoulder. The exhaling came then again and again, a steady labored noise rattling in some phantom throat, but I didn't dare turn around. I wish now that I had, but I didn't. I stared forward. I didn't blink. And I picked up my cell phone plugged into the wall there. Hello? There's water in the car, Cass. Oh God, there's so much water in the car. I let out a long breath as Richard's voice, distorted by static, and all at once the bed was empty again, and only silence was ringing in my ear. A police officer told me a few days later that his little silver Ford had been caught in the sudden storm and that he'd been swerved too hard around a bend in the road. He had died from the collision when the vehicle hit the water. And the drop was too high for any other possibility, of course. So at least he didn't drown. Something said to me as if it were a genuine comfort. And he had not been conscious to see the water filling his car. They did not find his phone. God, I should call Connie. I can't take this anymore. Turning from the armoire, I move once more for the bed, for my telephone still plugged into the wall, perched there on the end table. I stare, and it rings, and I scream. I can recall, even from where I am now, that it was a full, horrible noise, hurled from the very depths of my stomach, as if I were finally letting that terrible great stone out, and one that had been sitting there within it. It echoes from the very core of me, but I don't answer the phone. My neighbor in the apartment next door is a very nice young man. He has shaggy hair and an earring, and he checks in on me from time to time. I stir him from sleep with my wailing, and he will, a few moments from now, come to knock on my door. I don't answer because I'm picking up the telephone to see that I have a missed call now from Connie and shaking there in my dark bedroom as he knocks, I decide to dial her again. My neighbor will call the police. He will tell them that he heard me scream a little bit after three in the morning, and he will tell that same story still for many, many years to come, whispered around darkened tables and across the occasional campfire. The police will call Connie, and she will tell them that she had been lying awake all night herself, tossing and turning with a great heavy weight in her stomach. She will tell them that she had called me when she could no longer bear it, but I didn't answer. Even though her own phone will ring a few seconds later, she will answer it to hear only her own name. She will say, uttered desperately through a flurry of static, but there will be no record of that call, and they will not believe her.
citing technical glitches or tricks played by fear. And when they break down my door, they will think I had fallen asleep with my armoire doors open and the glass on the floor. I had not. But they will find me just as I found myself, blue-faced, breathless, covered still by the mound of blankets in my own empty bed, where I had laid for many motionless hours by then. Someone has died, of this I am certain. Someone has died. Oh God, it's me. I called that shit from the beginning. Uh, I knew it. I knew it. I was waiting for it. And I almost said something, but I didn't want to like give the whole story away. Yeah, I'm but glad I knew you it. didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I dig that one a lot. That's that's good. Yeah, I, I'm really happy with the rhythm of it. Yeah, for sure. And I really dig like the descriptions of of everything. Like, yeah, just like everything that happened and kind of the different instances of knowing like with her husband yeah. and and everything but yeah like as soon as as soon as she said like someone died i was like hmm. <laughs> and then the more it came to it and her like hesitating calling and stuff i was like yep yeah it's it was definitely her i was just yeah. waiting for her to turn around and like see her lifeless body so right yeah awesome yeah i like that one that's spooky as shit it really is like right. yeah yeah it's, I had there's something at one point. Good, good. Yeah. That's awesome. I there's something that I find really unnerving about that. Like, obviously, like there's the huge question of life after death. Right? right. We talk about ghosts and stuff on the show all the time, hauntings, all that. But there's something that I find particularly scary or upsetting. I think even of about the first few moments after death. Of like, you know, and it's often depicted in movies and in TV of like the person who's died, but they don't know they've died. Yeah, of course. You know, that whole concept freaks me out. I I definitely agree. And there was a few years ago, I remember having this like very, very vivid dream that like I got out of bed and like I, I get up just basically as I do every day. And then, like, sure. I'm walking around the house, and the house is, like, eerily silent and everything. And, like, cut to, I end up walking back to my bedroom, and then I see literally myself, like, laying dead. Ugh. And it's super, super weird, and I don't, I don't know why. It was just, it was a really, really, like, terrifying dream, and it messed with me for a long time. Yeah. That's, like, did you wake up from it? Yeah. Yeah, like, like I, yeah. I I remember waking up, I think I was crying at that point. Like it was like yeah. it was brutal. Um Dude, yeah. yeah. Like it was just a really weird, like out of body like experience, but like at the same time, like it wasn't just out of body, like I literally like I knew that I was I was dead when I saw myself. So yeah. Yeah, that's dude, that's terrifying. Yeah, it was it was like, See, really weird. So like I used to have dreams like that. And then I had kids, and my fucked up brain that hates me started making me have yeah. nightmares about my children. Oh, dying. I, I, I'm not surprised. Yeah. And dude, those are the kind of dreams you wake up like panting, breathless, like crying, mm-hmm. like and fucked up for days. Yeah. Over it, I, like I could imagine. Man, yeah, that'd be awful. That would be even worse for sure. Yeah, awful, awful shit. But yeah, that. 
that time period right after death freaks me out. Yeah. Like I, it's imagine it's, getting stuck there forever. For that eternity. would be, yeah, like, that would be awful. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, you know, like even just talking about like haunts and stuff like that, like I never, I don't know, at least myself, I never think about like that possibility. Like, yeah, you think about like, you know, a haunting or someone, you know, someone lingering or whatever else, but I never think about it like being, I guess, occurring like that. Right. Yeah. Um, it almost seems like it happens later. Right. But I, I don't like know. Like they maybe... transition into being a poltergeist. Right. Exactly. After... Yeah. But maybe, maybe those hauntings are, are spirits of people who are just eternally locked in that state of confusion. And... Yeah. Well, that's you know, that's true too. And unwillingness to accept what's happening. Right, right, yeah. And you have, of course, like the idea of people getting stuck in like what they were doing at that moment in time, and yeah. it's like an endless loop of of kind of like that whole thing, which that would yeah. be awful too. So, yeah, I mean, if you were aware of it, right? I mean, because if you go as far as like the stone tape theory, you can talk about like the literally the energy the soul or the energy inside the person is just replaying on repeat it's not necessarily conscious yeah it's just that energy is flowing in the same way it did in the last moments of life eternally you know yeah yeah it's it's just crazy i mean i don't know i we again we talk about these things a lot and like what you know like how we feel about them and we tell the stories about like what's happened and stuff like that but like to really like think about it like that or kind of put it uh you know i guess put thought into it rather yeah it just it's it's almost it almost like changes the tone of it it's scarier it really is yeah see i think this is like the val this is the the real value of fiction is it like it allows us to to really like dive into these concepts in a way that that allows us to to like explore the details of them right you know um yeah i think that's a great example for sure now you uh you ready to switch things switch things up and kind of change the the whole tone of this <laughs> yeah dude awesome. yeah i'm i'm ready i'm ready for what you got cool well, mine is, uh, mine is titled, I participated in a university experiment and was the only survivor. All right, we'll pick that music back up. I feel like I should be grateful and that everything could have been so much more worse. But the thing is, the experiment worked. In a way. And now I know. The conductor of the experiment... Professor William Hardin was known around campus as the hard drive. He was blessed with an incredible ability to process and retain information of every kind. Though he was primarily a physics professor leading infamously difficult courses on thermodynamics, analytical mechanics, and quantum entanglement, he held PhDs across multiple STEM fields, and his interests continued to expand from there some of which was allegedly solving the issue between the differences in teleportation of information and matter. It was also rumored he'd been awarded multiple government grants from the defense, energy, and health sectors. Of all the things he was known for, 
One of the more interesting was that every year, Hardin held interviews for whatever personal experiment he had been working on that semester. It was always an open offer to any PhD students at the school, whether they were studying a course in his department or not. There were English lit PhDs lined up next to PhDs in philosophy, mathematics, world history, and religion, as well as both MD PhDs in medicine and healthcare for dual physician scientists. Hardin didn't discriminate, he wanted people from everywhere. Hardin was an optimist, and the goal of the experiments were to inspire. He'd always felt incredible gratitude when he was present and able to witness the research, trials, and experiments of other scientists, especially those in other fields. He wanted others to have that same opportunity and experience. Ultimately, Hardin believed in humanity and was infinitely hopeful for our future. And he knew that successes in the future laid with us, the next generation of students. It was said that Hardin always found ways to incorporate his dynamically diverse volunteers into his experiment. The whole process was incredibly secretive, though, and the students had to sign NDAs before they went through the rigorous screening methods to choose the candidates. Therefore, no one outside of the experiment ever knew what happened in it, ever. There are rumors of how that was achieved. Some were related to the extensive violation penalties in the NDAs that would essentially sign your firstborn child away if breached. Then there were rumors about how Hardin had figured out a way to identify, select, and permanently erase memories. If you ask any of the students who were involved... They genuinely say they remembered every second. But they were Fort Knox after that. They wouldn't budge on giving any details or even hints. The NDAs held them tight-lipped. This created more fascination and wonder with the experiments. So being selected was considered a deep academic and personal honor. I was in the last year of my doctorate program in clinical psychology, specializing in neuropsychology and psychopathology, so I had no link to Hardin or his classes. My only knowledge of him was word of mouth. It was nearing the end of term and the flyers for Hardin's new experiment were found scattered across campus. I didn't expect to get picked, but threw my hat in the ring anyway. Then they called me. I was told to come to the mathematics building, where I'd need to sign an NDA before anything went further. This is where I met Liz, Hardin's assistant. After the NDA, she hooked me up to a polygraph and pointed several cameras from different angles on me. I assumed they were monitoring for changes in facial expression or body language. Liz started off with a modified and highly advanced Weschler Adult Intelligence Scale that focused heavily on mental processing speed and the Perceptual Reasoning Index. As I went through the first portion, it was apparent they wanted to specifically measure in my nonverbal abstract problem-solving abilities and quantitative reasoning. They wanted to know how well I can make sense out of the senseless. 
I was then put through a series of three heavily modified emotional intelligence tests relating to trait EI, ability EI, and mixed EI. Personally, I wasn't a fan of EI tests before the adjusted and somehow provocative ones I went through in that room. They're manipulative by design. They work the same as most IQ tests in that there is one predetermined answer for each question. But with IQ tests, you have to do the work to provide the answer. A skilled sociopath could game EI tests by knowing and giving the correct answer, even though they might do the opposite in the given situation. Which is why measuring EI is incredibly hard. I was then asked to talk about myself in great detail, fractioning my life into two-year segments moving backwards. There were deep, personal questions. Questions about my philosophy and views on humanity. It was more difficult than my master's thesis defense, but I felt like I answered everything clearly and honestly. Then they asked me the final question. Why was I there? I blinked. Seconds passed and I had nothing. Liz stared at me, waiting. Finally, an answer came to me and it was truthful. I said, Because I want to be a part of something larger than myself. Three days later, I received a phone call from Liz. I was told to come back to the mathematics building. When I arrived, I was greeted by Liz, Professor Harden, and Harden's older brother, Brian. If Harden looked good for 75, Brian looked like an Olympian at 78. They had similar faces, but vastly different builds. Harden was your typical-looking but healthy physics professor. Brian looked more like an explorer. Sun-kissed skin and muscles hardened by time. They both carried the same welcoming smile. I was informed I had been selected to participate in the Democles experiment, and that it was the culmination of Hardin's life's work. All the experiments he had been performing for the previous seven years had led to this. It would be taking place that weekend. I'd be picked up with the other participants that Friday afternoon, or we'd be taken to Hardin's property in the mountains. From there, the experiment would be revealed and everything would be explained. And that was it. I left, beyond thrilled, and felt like I floated out of the building after the news. Friday arrived and a large greyhound bus picked me up. There were what I counted out as 14 other student volunteers, making 15 of us in total. Would you be excited about this? (sighs) So, I don't. The thing about it is, so it, these are experiments that nobody knows what actually goes on. Yeah. And everybody says that they do, but they're very hush hush about it. Like, so, I mean, that could, you know, that doesn't seem so bad, I guess. You know, the they're, whole thing just, they're forced it's to so sign cloak NDAs. And dagger. Right. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I don't know if I'd be excited. Yeah. I don't know either. Especially <laughs> they're being taken to this, like, remote area now so yeah 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 that, it might that'd be a little off-putting i think agreed the drive up to harden's property in the mountains took almost two hours it was filled with winding roads through forests and hills 
We passed through the gates of two sets of electrified fences. It was another half hour from the fences to reach Hardin's house. There was more than just a house, though. I didn't see it at first because it was painted the same mixed green color pattern as the leaves and the trees surrounding it. There were several structures built together into a large research compound in the shape of a hexagon. Hardin, the frazzled-haired professor with a patch-covered sport coat, stood in front of his old Ford Focus, excited for our arrival. Brian and Liz joined us and the three led us into the compound. It was a state-of-the-art facility with bunks, bathrooms, showers, and fully stocked kitchens to match the advanced R&D tech Hardin had been messing around with. We were shown to the large sleeping quarters where we were to get settled in before the introduction meeting. Liz and Brian came to round us up and we were each given a full-body heat-protective suit with breathers and air tanks. So, I'm just going to say, that's yeah, that's weird. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that's absolutely weird. Right. (laughs) All right. We were then led to the main chamber of the compound, which looked like a mad scientist's wet dream. There were grand, retracting doors on the ceiling that opened to allow what at first looked like some kind of futuristic telescope to peer up and out. But it wasn't a telescope. Hardin joined us. He started off by giving a brief but detailed history of his former occupations and research. It was fascinating. Hardin started working for National Defense with the Glenn L. Martin Company in the early 1950s. After several mergers across decades, the company became known as the weapons production juggernaut Lockheed Martin. Confidentially, Hardin headed the Skunk Works division at LM, which was an advanced aircraft manufacturing facility in the California desert. It was rumored he had been working on anti-gravity technology for travel, developing aircrafts without wings or classical propulsion systems. Hardin led a team of U.S. aerospace engineers in the revisiting of an unconventional type of force referred to as electrogravitics. It was an anti-gravity force created by an electric field's effect on a mass. The team spent years seeking out the source of gravity and its control. Objectives for the team were obvious. The military was only interested in using the technology for weapons. The government was like-minded. Hardin was far more interested in creating permanent, fuel-less heating units for homes and industrial establishments, as well as for deep space travel. His aim wasn't so much about making materials weightless, but about giving them negative weight. This would act similarly to a reverse magnet, and would create a repulsive force that would send them in directions, contra-gravitationally. In the late 50s, Hardin was simultaneously consulting with DARPA on a project codenamed Seesaw. It was focused on charged particle beam weapons and brought the professor into contact with some of the government's acquired knowledge on Nikola Tesla. 
Seeing that funding was only flowing into defense and weapons tech, Hardin left the skunk works and DARPA, but continued his own research on gravity, knowing the harnessing of its power could be world-changing. This is the type of, the type of, like, deep black ops tech development that, like, all the nuts and bolts ufologists point at. Right? Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very cool. Yeah, it's, it's super deep, for sure. But it wasn't just gravity that interested him. It was also vibration, frequency, and energy. Three solvable secrets of the universe, according to Tesla. Hardin had spent his entire life studying the work of the inventor. In fact, Hardin had created an advanced form of ground-penetrating radar pulse technology that used electromagnetic radiation waves to generate detailed profiles of subterranean structures. He attached the sensors onto low-flying drones that canvassed from above. Hardin's vision was hyper-focused on Colorado Springs, but it was Pikes Peak, Colorado, eight years ago, where the discovery was made. There's long been a rumor about trunkloads full of Tesla's technical and scientific papers and research being hidden somewhere near his property, or in the vast mountains beyond. Amongst the trunks were Tesla's secrets and knowledge on everything. Using his new radar pulse tech, Hardin and his brother found one of Tesla's trunks. And this particular trunk focused on the fluid electrical charges that ran under the Earth's surface. Notebooks filled with equations and explanations on how to harness the grid as a limitless, free power supply. There were designs and diagrams for large mechanical oscillators that could have powered entire countries. Four years ago, Hardin had built his own oscillator. It had worked as his property's only energy source since then. Everything in the compound ran off of it. The trunk also filled in large gaps Hardin had on theories of vibration and frequency. He built his own much larger oscillator with a design using two massive solid copper pillars that rose 20 feet off the ground. They were perfectly cylindrical in shape. The two prongs pointed to the sky parallel to one another. Hardin told us to put our full head masks on and seal them to the suit. When everyone had, he turned the machine on. The pillar shook, then vibrated so quickly the frequency was created between the two. Electric bolts shot between them and multiplied until there were hundreds of threads connecting the conductors. Five minutes at this rate could produce enough power for our country's grid for a month, Hardin had said. And there weren't any storage needs, because the oscillator was channeling it directly from the Earth's endless natural grid. But this was only a portion of why we were here. Hardin needed copious amounts of energy for the real experiment. Our attention was directed to the telescope-licking machine, and Hardin finally explained what it was. We were looking at the most powerful light ever created, on Earth or otherwise. 
Hardin had created a laser that produced a light beam exceeding one trillion times that of the brightness of the sun. Not only that, but it moved faster than the technical speed of light, at over 500 million miles per second. He called the light system the Ark. Because of the endless energy source, the perfect design and construction of the oscillator and light beam, Hardin could continue to push the limits of what was previously settled science. In last year's experiment, the group were present for contact with an alien being. They turned on the arc for 20 minutes, pointing it up and into the coma supercluster. In that time, strange sounds were recorded. It appeared to be white noise at first, but then it turned into something alive, something aware, and it wasn't produced by vocal cords. The volunteers all gave different statements on what they had experienced. Some claimed the sounds contained certain notes, tones, peaks, and valleys. Others, that the sounds came from inside their heads, inside their chests. Some heard languages they didn't know, but somehow understood. Some said the sounds were positive. Others said they were negative and frightening. No one knew what the sounds actually were, but Hardin had ideas. He believed the light from the Ark had reached somewhere with intelligent, extraterrestrial life. The beings they heard traveled using light avatars along the beam being produced and had tried to communicate. And for those few minutes, it almost seemed like they were. But the connection was lost. There was an issue with the oscillator, and the experiment ended there. Now, a year later, Harden had fixed the problem and was ready to try again. All this work, a signal for aliens. Right. Dude, that's... I mean... I honestly wasn't expecting that. Right. It's honestly, you remember the guy that we talked about in the, uh, the, the Patreon or the new uh, episode that we did for Patreon? UK's Elon Musk. Yeah. Yeah. He had built the or bought the, uh, the shelter, the old satellite. Yeah. And yeah. like he's using it basically to search for like extraterrestrial life and all this other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's this guy. Kinda, yeah. That's what it reminds me of for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. With 18 people present including the professor, Brian and Liz, we were lined up in groups of three, six, and nine. I was in the last row at the edge. We waited a few minutes for overhead satellites to clear the skies. Then we had a half-hour window to aim into the coma supercluster. The oscillator, which had been humming idly by, was given more energy. We watched the electrical bolts dance and surge between the copper rods, channeling downwards and converting into energy to push the light threshold further and further. The overhead dome opened, revealing the clear night sky above. Hardin increased the power to the arc, then turned the beam on. It was immediate and overwhelming. Even through my suit, I felt the heat being given off by the arc. The light beamed upwards, 
cutting through the darkness. I couldn't look directly at it. It was impossibly, painfully bright. Harden increased the power again, sending the room into a new level of illumination. The ground under our feet was vibrating. Everyone was looking up into the sky, but my attention was on the ground, and the small electric swirls dancing and curling up from under the floor panels. I didn't feel right. Everyone else stared straight up and seemed fine, but I felt nauseous and dizzy. I felt a shock under my feet. The blue electrical currents from the ground were starting to shoot up the lengths of my legs. I stepped back, not wanting to look up. I knew everyone was fixated on the beam, but I couldn't be here anymore. I needed to lie down. I backed up, slowly making my way to the door leading to the hallway. As I did, I decided to look back. Just inside the ceiling door, sparks were spraying out from a pure white electrical cloud. From inside it, a chasm was tearing open the fabric of our reality. I could see through it, into it, and I could see our world all around it. It was bright white and filled with clouds and large, hulking figures. From their backs sprouted grand sets of wings. They wore plates of gold around their necks and moved with unimaginable grace until they saw us. It became clear to me that what I was looking at weren't aliens. We hadn't contacted some extraterrestrial race in a distant galaxy. Maybe the group from last year had, but this felt more like a biblical Wizard of Oz. Those hulking figures weren't aliens. They were angels. Oh. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I love the turn. We're getting into like ultra terrestrial shit. Right. That, oh yeah, for sure. I mean, this is like when I think when I think Titan and stuff like that, this is yeah. exactly it. Yep. Exactly. Just tear the veil open yeah. and reach through. And there I was, with the curtain pulled aside, staring into heaven. No one was moving. Everyone was in a trance, staring up in awe. Then one of the angels looked down and saw the group staring up through the hole. And all of a sudden, the grace the angel carried disappeared. The angel's massive hands grabbed the sides of the tear and pulled it further open. He pushed his gargantuan head through it, through the opening, snarling down on us in our reality. Heat pulsed from the angel's aura as his upper body entered into our world. The heat was unbearable. I watched as the other 14 volunteers and the professor, Brian, and Liz melted down into a goopy pile of unrecognizable flesh. Oh, shit. Seeing all the witnesses dead, the angel reached down and grabbed a hold of the ark with one hand and the oscillator with his other. The angel's large muscles rippled and tensed as he tightened his grip. 
and just as he was breaking the machines and closing the terror, his eyes locked with mine. The angel saw me there. One more witness. Cowering in the hallway entrance. The next moment, he was gone, and the room was dark. The power was completely out. The machine Harden had created was dead. Crushed and melted down into an unrecognizable heap. Just like him. On the walk back to civilization, I thought about Harden. How he'd wanted to change the world. To save it. There were so many ways his technology could have helped us all. Instead, he'd accidentally proved there was an afterlife. There was a heaven. And it was not the place of love and welcoming we were hoping it was. Jesus. Yeah. That uh, that took a turn, that's for sure. Yeah, I think we landed on a theme for, for, for the episode. <laughs> yeah, true, actually. Yeah, unexpected versions of the afterlife, right? Yeah. Dude, which that's this is this one's gnarly i mean obviously you know we we don't really talk a whole lot about religion on this show sure and, you know like uh everybody has their views or doesn't you know um yeah but i i love this i love like i love that idea you know yeah. like this this heaven you know could honestly anything could be perceived as as heaven like this this rip, of this course. like tear in the fabric of reality, like you know, being seeing something that could be perceived as angels could be perceived more so, like you know, within the the whole Titan theory, um, you know, stuff like that. Like these could be yeah. either like super, uh, you know, um, like super terrestrial, super, yeah, uh, like being terrestrials, yeah, just yeah. but beyond that. Like completely right. beyond ultra terrestrials, right? So, like, which you know is what I would I like to see that as, and essentially, I mean, at this point, maybe Hardin was getting too close to, like, yeah. for humanity, because you know, because the way that, like, with the with the Titan theory, like, you know, we as a human race slowly develop and continue to develop into, you know, basically an ultra terrestrial race. Yeah. Uh, as time progresses and like as technology progresses and everything else, so you know them seeing basically the end of everything they they had to put a stop to it yeah and that being heaven or whatever you want to consider like sure. yeah it was just uh yeah i i love that they weren't welcoming like it was very much yeah. like no like got to shut this shit down yeah that's dude that's awesome. terrifying i agree yeah that that whole concept is it's scary and awesome yeah it's there's i agree i, I agree for I sure kinda, i'm kind of at a loss because it's like i was not expecting that at all right like, i mean we're talking like yeah they're they're looking for aliens cool like yeah. awesome and then no they just completely they fucked it oh yeah like Dude, I, mean, I like, mean, this is basically the story of Icarus, right? Like, he had all these resources, all these, you know, this advanced intelligence. He had all this, like, background and 
the work research he'd been doing over the decades right. and all this technology and resources at his disposal and he flew too close to the sun. Yeah. He went, you know, he went a step too far. Yeah, that's and got stopped. Right. Yeah, it, it's very very similar to that like in that regard for sure. Yeah. And in this case, getting stopped means you get melted. <laughs> yeah. Literally Dude just melted. instant melted into a pile of goop. Goop. Goop and rubble. Yeah. Damn. I'm wondering why the fellow didn't drive back to town. There were definitely cars there. Yeah. Yeah, there were definitely Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, true. Well yeah, I mean walked back. But this also this like complex was like hidden and camouflaged by like the whole area around it so i'm sure they probably had to walk a good distance there yeah it could be you know which i mean i was just thinking of the yeah i was just thinking of the professor's old ford focus true yeah i might have driven that back i mean yeah but i don't know maybe you just needed some time to think after that shit yeah that wouldn't blame him yeah man like that would be enough to like that would wreck everything you've no yeah. and will ever know yeah it would alter your perception of reality permanently Completely, yes <laughs> yeah it's awesome i dig it dude great great story for sure great story i loved it yeah yeah they were both uh they were both very decent so we're gonna have to top this next episode yeah i think yeah, it's gonna we'll be tough to, to do <laughs> <laughs> This is a great way to kick off spooky season. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Without right. a doubt. Yep. October 1st tomorrow. We have a ton of things planned for this month. Yes, so. be on the lookout. It, uh, yeah, multiple things throughout the week. So if you're if you're one of the people that just listen to Fireside Chats or just listen to the weekly episodes or both, just make sure to tune in all week. Yeah, you're going to have a pile of episodes from us this month. So. Exactly. So enjoy it, because we're putting in the work, and uh, hopefully everybody digs it. Yeah. With that said, I think that wraps up our first episode of Friday Night Fright. <laughs>